We're going to be in Matthew 5, 17 through 37. So I'm page 810 in the Bibles around the room. When I'm done, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to respond, thanks be to God, because indeed, at this church, we believe this is the inspired word of God, his love letter to us. If you were here last week, you heard Rowena um, speak in Portuguese, which was gorgeous, and we're a church that's um, very diversified. So I have no such skill, so I'm going to be speaking in my native tongue of grandma. So... (laughs) Here we go. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison." Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. 
Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, these are some tough words from Jesus, and many of us are squirming. Let us not rebel or shy away from the truth of your word, but let us open our ears, our minds, to what you would have Pastor Kyle say through the Holy Spirit today. Give us your grace and love in abundance, Father. We need you so very badly. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Melanie. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church. How did uh, how many of you went to the ladies' retreat? Woo! All right, that's as high as I can go. Woo! Okay, but um, I'm glad you did. And we had 63 ladies go. Um, if you weren't able to make it, that's okay. Um, for those of you who went, I hope that it was fruitful for you. I hope that it was really good. And my encouragement to you is uh, just continue building those relationships with the people that you made while you were up there. And the stuff that you learned, apply it. Don't just have it be like a once in a year thing. Like take what you learned and bring it back. Um, We are going through the uh, book of Matthew right now, specifically in chapters 5, 6, and 7. So if you're a guest with us at Living Stones, that's what we like to do here. We believe that God has spoken to us through his Bible, which we believe is his word. And so we like to just go through, right through what the Bible says, and that's what we're doing. And, and we're in the sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus's famous sermon that he gave within the first year of his ministry, and he gave it on a mountain. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And as we've been preparing to get to this section, as I've been meditating and prepping this sermon, I've honestly had quite a bit of a hard time. Um, I've struggled all week. Because on one hand, as I've been wrestling through what we just read, it's so beautiful. I've just been imagining, what if we actually lived like this? And I've been inspired to come and talk about it, but then I've also been confronted because it's also terrifying. Because I feel like it's so beautiful, but as soon as I start talking about it, I realize how big of a fraud I really am. And that's, that's the thing with things of great beauty, isn't it? A lot of times they draw you to it, but they also crush you by the beauty at the same time. Think about being in the wilderness and seeing all the stars in the sky. Like if you've ever been like way out in the middle of nowhere and just, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's so awesome. But then all of a sudden it's terrifying at the same time because you realize every one of those little lights is a sun and has its own solar system. And you just realize how small you really are. Or imagine standing at the edge of the ocean. It's amazing and beautiful and you can't take your eyes off of it, but it's also humbling at the same time because you realize how small and just little you are. You're like, I'm not going in there. I'll die. Well, that's kind of how the Sermon on the Mount is. It's God showing us, this is my state. This is my beautiful kingdom. And we're drawn to it, but we're also terrified by it at the same time because we realize that every one of us fails. And so as you read through this stuff that we're going to be talking about today, you should feel an internal struggle and internal turmoil. Because that is what's happening. You're paying attention. You're seeing the beauty of it, but you're also acknowledging your failures within it. But the good news of the gospel is this. 
is that this beautiful life that Jesus lays out here, the beautiful life is fulfilled in Christ. And that's the big idea for this text. The beautiful life is fulfilled in Christ. We're going to ask three questions as we go through the sermon. The first one is, what does this mean? The second one is, what does this look like? And the third is, how, uh, how is it possible? So first of all, what does this mean? The first thing that Jesus says is this. I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. That's in verse 17. That's the first thing that it means. Jesus didn't come to lower or get rid of the Old Testament requirements. He came to fulfill them. Verse 18 says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What he's getting at is, you see, there's all this, these people around him. And the reason that they're around him is because he had come and he started proclaiming the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. That the kingdom of heaven has come down to earth in the person of Christ. And so they saw his power because he was casting out demons. And because he was healing people and, and the sick were being brought to them and they would instantly be healed. They heard his authority because they said things like, nobody has ever taught like this. And so they started questioning, is he going to give us a new teaching? Is he going to throw out and rival and challenge Moses and the law and the prophets? Is, is he just going to get rid of all that and give us something new? And Jesus says, no. I think it's interesting to note that as humans, we're always looking for the next best thing, aren't we? Let's get rid of our old style and get a new one. Let's get rid of our old job and get a new career. Let's get a new weight loss program. This little supplement, this is the thing you need. We're always looking for what is new. And Jesus says, I'm not here to just give you, to, to scrap everything that was old. I came to give it to you in a new way in, in such that you haven't understood it before. But I'm here not to get rid of the old, but to fulfill the old. He didn't come to lessen the Old Testament requirements. He came to fulfill them. And so that's what he says. He says, not an iota, not a dot of what was written in the Old Testament will, be, will he throw into the trash. And what that means is an iota is um, in, the, in the Hebrew language, there's letters, but then there's also like little dots or dashes above them. And if you remove even one of those dots or dashes, it changes the whole meaning of the word. And Jesus is saying, I'm, that's how serious I am about my law and my requirements is I'm not getting rid of the least part because I'm not going to change any of it. Rather, I've come to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill it. So what does this mean? Well, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. He gives us two categories, the law and the prophets. That's shorthand for saying the entirety of the Old Testament the law and the prophets. The law is God's instruction and revelation and the prophets is God's promises and rebuke. And Jesus is saying, I've come to fulfill all of it. So in every way that the Old Testament has doctrine or revelation about who God is, Jesus is saying, I've come to fulfill and show you who God is. In every way that the Old Testament has moral commands, Jesus is saying, I've come to embody these moral commands on your behalf. In every way that there's uh, promises in the Old Testament, the New Testament says that all those promises are found as yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And then as the Old Testament has a lot of ceremonial requirements, 
meaning God is set apart and holy and distinct from us because he is, he is holy we, and we are sinful. Therefore, in order to worship him, you had to do all these different ceremonial requirements. You had to make yourself clean, washings and sacrifices and rituals. And Jesus is saying, I've come to fulfill all of that. No longer do you have to come to church with your goat to sacrifice or your pigeon because he is our greater sacrifice. In fact, in the Old Testament, the book of Hebrews tells us that the people made sacrifices knowing that those sacrifices couldn't satisfy the wrath of God for human sin. They were only pointing to something that would one day come, which is Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice. The human who would give himself on behalf of us, the divine one who had the bank account large enough to satisfy the wrath of God. And so he says, I've come to fulfill all of this. And so what that means is when we approach the Bible, we don't approach it as like, well, God was like this in the Old Testament, but now he's like this in the New Testament. Rather, we approach it seeing an unfolding progressive story of the same God, the same Lord Jesus Christ. So the great Bishop J.C. Ryle said, um, in the Old Testament, we see the gospel in bud. In the New Testament, we see it in flower. In the Old Testament, we see it just this little bud of a, of a rose. But in the New Testament, as Jesus comes, we see all of God's promises come to fruition and it flowers. And so that's quite the claim Jesus is making. He's saying all that revelation about God, you can see it right here in me. All those ceremonial requirements, right here in me. All the moral commands, I'm going to do them. It's quite the claim. It should inform us how we read our Bibles. The whole thing is about Jesus. The whole thing is the Jesus Bible. This is the whole thing. And so what it also means is this. Since Jesus didn't come to trash the requirements, we don't get to lessen them. He didn't trash them. We don't get to lessen them. That's what he says in the next verse, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying, I didn't come to throw them out. Why are you? As humans, we all have a tendency to take God's high, perfect standards and lower them to something that we think we can achieve. And Jesus says, no, I didn't come to lower. I didn't come to throw out God's requirements. I came to fulfill them. Therefore, you don't get to relax them. And anybody who does will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, that term least is a a term of honor. And he's basically saying there is no honor for those who relax God's requirements. In other words, we don't get to have a low view of God's law. Because a low view of God's law is a low view of God. Because you're seeking to lessen his holiness. And so that means as we look at all the commands in the Bible, there's no unless statements. There's no, it, it doesn't say, honor your father and mother. Unless they're being really big pains and then you can disrespect them. It doesn't say, you shall not covet, unless your neighbor has a sweet boat that you would love to imagine yourself being in. It doesn't say, you shall not steal, 
Unless you think that thing will make your life a lot better and you don't want to pay for it. It doesn't say you shall not murder unless killing the person would make you feel really good. I mean, can you imagine if God allowed us to relax his law? Imagine a murderer standing before the judge. And he says, did you murder this person? Yes. Well, did it make you feel good? Yeah. All right, you're off the hook. That would be totally unjust, wouldn't it? All of our hearts would cry out for justice. And and this is good news. God is not going to lower our standards because we're sinful, broken people. He remains holy. He remains greater than we are. There is no relaxing his requirements. And that's actually good news. Because what it shows us is that we're not dealing with two different gods here. We're not dealing with the God of the Old Testament and then a different God in the New Testament. That's a, that was a heresy proclaimed by a guy named Mar, Marcion, and he got um, cast out of the church as a heretic. There's not two gods. It's not like the God of the Old Testament is rigid, but the God of the New Testament is all about love. That, that statement in itself has a few problems. And the reason why is this, is number one, it, it, it says that God in giving his commands wasn't being loving. But God is a good father. And just like a good father, he sets guardrails up so the kids don't kill themselves. That's what his commands are. And did you know that one of the most frequent statements in the Old Testament is his steadfast love endures forever? In the Old Testament, that just is over and over and over again. And then furthermore, it's to completely neglect what Jesus' words. In fact, Marcion's followers hated what Jesus said so much that they switched it around. They rewrote the Bible and they wrote it like this. Jesus saying, I did not come to fulfill the law, but to abolish it. And you might say, well, I'm not totally there, but we are whenever we try to relax God's standards. There is no relaxment. And that's good news. We're not dealing with two different gods. God's not schizophrenic. He's not suffering from multiple personality disorder. One God, same character from beginning to end. And, and his revelation of himself just progresses. Amen? The third thing that this means is that his requirements for righteousness are a lot higher than we like to think. Look at what he says in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were two religious groups. The scribes were the ones who uh, copied the Bible and uh, translated and interpreted it. They were very holy people. The Pharisees were considered also very holy people because they took God's commandments very seriously and how they should be applied to everyday living. In fact, the Pharisees had looked at all the laws and they were able to determine that in all of the Old Testament, there was 248 commands that you had to follow and 365 prohibitions that you had to avoid. They were very scrupulous about this. They were considered the most holy people there was. And Jesus says, if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you have to be more holy than them. That's an oh snap moment. Like, did he just say we have to be, like, we'll never get in? We have to be more holy than them? How is that even possible? 
I mean, it's like Jesus is saying, if you want to get into heaven, you have to be more righteous than Mother Teresa. Yeah, she sold everything, went over to Calcutta and served lepers there her entire life. You have to be more righteous than that. Wow. How's that even possible? What Jesus is getting at is this, is if you, his kingdom is a kingdom of perfection. And if you want to get in, his standards are higher than you think. Um, the sociologist in 2005, the sociologist Christian Smith uh, did some research on America and he came to the conclusion that the most common belief in America is that most people believe that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. And along with that, most people in America believe that as long as you're pretty good, nice, and fair, you are good with God and you'll go to heaven when you die. What Jesus is saying here, church, is no. I'm not lowering my standard down to be pretty good, fair, and nice enough. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, it's perfection. In fact, if you don't believe me, look at what he says in verse 48. Skip your eyes over there. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. There is no relaxing God's requirement. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to drive us to a crisis of faith. He's trying to drive us to understand we can't do this on our own. We need somebody to come and do it on our behalf. Therefore, we need Jesus. We need to be, as the New Testament says, born again, which means we need to get a new life. And the hope of this passage is in verse 17 because he says, this is what I came to do. The beautiful life is fulfilled in Christ. So what does it look like, though? As we begin to live in Christ, he seems to have this expectation for us to live this certain way. So what does it look like to live this beautiful life? It looks like this. Obedience from the heart. That was the problem that Jesus was confronting with the scribes and Pharisees. Is they were so meticulous about outward obedience, but they were rotting on the inside. And what Jesus is saying is, my kingdom is for those who have integrity of the heart and who obey me from the heart. And so what we're going to unfold, what he goes into is six categories where he's looking at our hearts and he's challenging our hearts. Today we're going to talk about four of them. Next week we're going to talk about the last two. And the categories are anger, lust, divorce, and oath-making. And so what you see in every one of these is Jesus saying, it's not just about outside, it's about the heart. Okay, so let's look at first. Anger, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, or raka, will be liable to the fire of hell. So he starts out by saying, you've heard it said. And this is very important. Pay attention here. What Jesus is not doing is he's not, he's not, confronting, a te- he's not confronting what God said. He's not confronting what the Old Testament said. He's confronting what teachers were doing to relax what he said. He's confronting false teaching. So when he says, you've heard it said, he's talking about the people who were teaching the Old Testament wrongly. He's not saying, well, in the Old Testament, it said this, but now in the New Testament, I say this. 
No, he's confronting the false interpretations about the Old Testament. And so first he says, uh, he, he brings up this issue of murder. And so the false teaching was this, is, you know, you really can't murder people. That's a good teaching, right? Like, don't murder people. But you can hate them in your heart. It's okay, just as long as you don't strike them, just as long as you don't kill them. You're, it's okay if you harbor that kind of anger in your heart. And Jesus says, no, it's not. Because I'm looking at your heart. He says, if, you have, if you're angry, if you remain angry with somebody, you're liable to judgment, just like you are if you were to murder, if you remain angry with somebody. If you insult somebody, you're liable to judgment, just as if you were, if you committed murder. And if you call somebody, you fool, or let's put it in our context, that idiot, or a curse word, you're liable to the same judgment as if you were to murder. Because God is looking at the heart. You, say, you might say, well, I said that, but I really didn't mean it. And Jesus says, well, out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. You see, Jesus is looking at our hearts. And he says, you need to, you need to take this very seriously. And so how do we deal with it? The solution is, in verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. In other words, what he's saying is if you have conflict with another person, deal with it swiftly and seriously. In fact, if you come to the place of worship and you're offering your gift or if you're at church and your hands are raised and you're singing your praises and you remember that somebody has something against you, leave that place and go and reconcile with them first and then come back and worship. It's like the one and only time God says, if you're in the middle of a worship service, leave now to go deal with your conflict. Taylor's going to deal with this conflict right now. <laughs> it's, he, he's saying, here's what he's saying. You need to take reconciliation as seriously as you take worship because it is worship. You need to take reconciliation as seriously as you take worship because it is worship. Worship is not just your relationship with God. It also overflows in how you treat other people. And notice what it says. Verse 23. It says, if you remember that your brother has something against you. It's not only if you have something against your brother or sister. Is if somebody has something against you. Normally we're like, well, if they have something against me, they can come talk to me. But that's not what he says. He says, if you are aware of this conflict, you take the initiative to go and do your part. Now, it's not always going to end in restoration. Jesus himself extended peace to all and was killed for it. But you need to own your part They might need to own their part. Jesus is saying, don't worry about them. You worry about you. Own your part. 
and take it seriously because your refusal to pursue reconciliation will lead to judgment. Because your refusal to not pursue reconciliation, your refusal to to pursue it is is you casting judgment on them and the same measure that you're judging them is gonna be judged against you. Jesus says at the end of the Lord's prayer, he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. This is very serious. And honestly, this is hard even for me. I've had to eat these words this week. There's a lady that um, I've had a little bit of conflict with back and forth. And um, I don't think that I did anything to wrong her, but she believes I had. And I was just like, no, I'm I'm not going to go. I didn't do anything wrong. That's how I was feeling. And then I got called out. Not only by this passage, I was studying this passage all week and still not willing to pursue reconciliation. And then a pastor called me and said, you're wrong on this. And I'm asking you to put Christ's words first. And so on Friday, I had to set up a meeting for peace. And it was hard. It still is hard. I mean, it's yet to come. I mean, it's going to probably be a battle from that day up to that. But th- like, this is not easy, people. This is, this is Jesus just going straight for the jugular. <laughs> so I'm, I'm wondering, who might he be asking you to do this with? Colossians 3, 12 through 13, it's going to be on the screen. The Apostle Paul expounds on this teaching. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. If you find yourself saying, but it's not my fault, remember that it wasn't the Lord's fault. Yes, he still gave himself for us. And if we're going to bring his kingdom to earth, that's the kind of initiative and dying to ourselves that it's going to take. The next category is lust. In verse 27, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the popular teaching of the time was, hey, as long, you know, you just can't commit adultery, but it's okay to look. That's popular teaching of our time, isn't it? Let's wear those sunglasses to the beach. It's okay to look, but you can't touch. Let's be honest. And it's not just this this term, sexual immorality, it's a huge term. It encompasses anything in which you look at somebody else and you want them for yourself. To be emotionally, physically. Jesus is saying that's the same thing in your heart as actually doing the act of adultery. You're wanting that person for yourself. And so you don't get to just lessen the law by saying, well, as long as you don't touch, you're fine. No, Jesus is saying, I'm looking at the heart. And so how are we supposed to deal with this since we're, we're all guilty of it? Verse 29, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus is saying, you need to deal drastically with this. You might say, well, I'm not cutting my hand off. That's crazy. Jesus is speaking in a figure of speech. This is hyperbole. Don't, please don't come to church with like one eye. Like, I did it. <laughs> I love the Lord. <laughs> There's actually a guy named Origen who castrated himself after reading these verses. I wonder how he felt like the next day when his mind was still having lustful thoughts. He was like, oh, snap. (laughs) What Jesus is saying is deal seriously with this. And he uses these terms, eye and hand, because your eye represents the intentions and your thoughts, and your hand represents your actions. So if you're having those, if you're, you're struggling with those thoughts, if you're struggling with those actions, be like, take it seriously and kill it. Um, another thing is during this time, it was popular that if a thief were to steal something, they'd get their hand cut off. And Jesus is also probably saying, the reason why you need to do this is because in taking somebody for yourself, you're being a thief. That's not, that's not yours. So he says, you need, to, you need to treat this with seriousness and you need to kill sin. Now, I know that a lot of us struggle with ongoing lust. And we struggle with giving into the act of it. And a lot, let's be honest, a lot of the reasons why we struggle with it is because we're not willing to kill it, we just try to avoid it. We're not willing to take extreme measures with it, we just try to avoid it, but that's silly. Imagine if somebody let a poisonous snake loose in your house. You're not going to be like, well, it's in the other room, I'm going to go to sleep tonight. No, that thing is going to come in and kill you. If you knew there was a poisonous thing in your house, you find it, you seek it and destroy it and get it out of there. That's what Jesus is saying you need to do with your lust. You need to take it that seriously. You take it extreme. He says, it's better to lose something that's good than for your whole body to be cast into judgment. In other words, what he's saying is some of you are struggling with this and you need to get rid of your computer, your smartphone. Some of you need to stop going to the corner, that place where the other person works. Some of you need to delete the number, get a new phone number so they can't contact you. Some of you, you you struggle with this at the gym. You need to go to a new gym. You need to go home gym. Take this seriously. Now, all of those are good things. Computers are good things. Jobs are good things. People are good things. Gyms are good things. So every, it's not, everybody doesn't need to deal with this the same way, but we all need to deal with it with the same amount of extreme uh, desire to kill sin. As Alistair Begg says, kill sin lest it be killing you. It, your lust doesn't want to help you. You never feel better after giving in to lust. You feel more empty, You feel like you need more? Get rid of it. Run to Christ who can actually fulfill your heart. So we need to take that seriously. The next category goes into is divorce. And with this, I'm going to try to handle more gently. 
It was also said, verse 31, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The common teaching of the time was based on a bad interpretation of Deuteronomy 34. And the teaching was, well, if you find some displeasure in your spouse, you can, you can get rid of them as long as you give them a certificate of divorce. Then you're good. And Jesus says, no. That's a perversion of what I've always intended marriage to be. He taught that they were, in doing that, they were totally misunderstanding the covenant of marriage. God's idea for marriage is that it would be one man and woman bound together in covenant devotion for a lifetime. Meaning we don't get to relax that standard just because we don't like them anymore or they've changed. This was such a big deal that it got brought up again in Matthew 19, and that's going to be on the screen. And it says this, a Pharisee came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce a wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that the one who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Therefore, or they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to him, because of your hardness of heart, Moses, get this word, allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus is saying divorce happens, but it's not God's ideal. God, it says of Micah, hates divorce. Now certainly, let's give me your attention here for a moment. Certainly, there are reasons for a divorce to be allowed. Jesus mentions here adultery, which is, I know that some of you have experienced that and it's horrible. First Corinthians, Paul mentions abandonment, which I think based on that and other passages in the Old Testament, you can make a case also for abuse. But all other reasons to get a divorce, Jesus says, those are sinful reasons. Now, I'm not saying that there might not be time to separate There might not be time to put up legal stipulations about how you relate to one another. But we must not lower God's standard of what he intended marriage to be. And those of you who've been divorced, which is a lot of us in this room, you know that there's a ring of truth to this because you know how painful divorce really is. It's said that to be divorced is actually worse than losing a spouse. It rips your heart apart that much. And so the challenge for us is to think of marriage the same way God thinks of marriage, not the way our culture thinks of marriage. Our culture says, if you fall in love with somebody and they make you emotionally happy, get married. But the question that persists is, well, what happens if if the emotions go away? What happens if you hit a hard patch in life? 
What happens if people change? Which, by the way, we all change. Bodily and emotionally. Well, according to the culture's view, if you don't like them anymore, you can just get rid of them. But Jesus says, not according to my view. Because the biblical, the, the, God's idea for marriage is that it's rooted in devotion for each other, not emotion or circumstances. And so at the very least, if you're somebody who's contemplating divorce, here's my plea with you. If you're that far, I know it's serious. Please come talk to us as your pastors. Please don't make this decision in isolation. Please, let's work together and make it slowly. And let's try to do our best to honor Christ's word and ask him what's going to make him please, not us. Because the truth is, where you are pleasing him, you're going to be most satisfied. So the next thing that Jesus addresses, the next false teaching is the teaching on oaths. And he says in verse 33, Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. In other words, Jesus is confronting this false teaching of oaths where people were saying, well, if you said this oath, then you had to keep it. But if you said this one, you didn't have to keep it. So like one I read this week was, if you swore by Jerusalem, you didn't have to keep it. You could back out at the last minute. But if you looked toward Jerusalem, where God's presence was in the temple, then you had to keep it. And Jesus is like, that's stupid. <laughs> he was like, you guys are making these oaths like, I swear by the hair on my chinny-chin-chin, or I swear, you know, by my, the hair on my head. He's like, you have no control over the hair on your head. That's why we're going bald. Don't think of yourself so highly. Rather, just be a kind of people who let your yes be yes and your no be no. So just take your word seriously because these people were saying, I swear by the temple, meaning I'm in the pre when I say that, I, it's as if my words were in the presence of the temple. And Jesus is saying, when you say yes or no, you're always in the presence of God because God's presence is everywhere. So treat it that seriously. And so, oh, the church needs to hear this. <laughs> what if we could actually become a people who honored our words when we get hired? Yes, Mr. Employer or Mrs. Employer, I will work my tail off for you for the full day. What if we were just people of our word and did that? What if when we told our neighbors or something that we would help out and we woke up tired on Saturday, we wouldn't back out of the commitment? What if Christians were just, maybe what, I mean, how beautiful would it be if this were to happen? People would look at the church and say, yeah, I might not agree with what they say, but they keep their word. I can trust them. People will never want to hear the message of the gospel until they can trust you. And this is why it matters. It's a mark of the kingdom. So at the end of the day, Jesus is saying, my kingdom is one of inward integrity, not, work, not just outward obedience. I mean, imagine all this stuff. 
it, it, what he's getting at is it's, it's stuff of the heart. Now, it's not saying that outward obedience doesn't matter. He's given us some outward things to obey, right? But he's saying, what, what I'm looking at is the heart. God has always looked at the heart. But it is possible to have a veneer of outward obedience and to have a rotten heart. In 2010, my wife and I bought a home and it was at the bottom of the market. And at the time, there was people flipping homes. They would buy them, they would put some paint on them and then they would sell them again. And we bought a flipped home. It would look great. After living in a while, living in a while, we realized that it had some major plumbing problems though. One time we're sitting at the dinner table and water's dripping from the ceiling. And then we go into the kitchen, it's dripping there. And I reach up my hand and I touch it and then my hand goes all the way through. And the person who flipped the home had stuffed it with newspaper and paper mache and then painted over it as if there was no problem. But that's a lot what we do with spirituality. And Jesus is saying, no, my kingdom is not like the other religions out there, which is all about looking good. My kingdom is one of the heart. It's one of the heart. And so imagine if we could become this kind of people. We would be a people who, we would be a kingdom of reconciliation. We would be a people who aren't lusting after other people. Imagine that. Wouldn't that be an awesome world to live in? You're not worried about lust. We would be a people who honor marriage and hold it in high regard. We would be a people who keep our word even when it's difficult. Last week we talked about Jesus saying, we need to be light in the midst of darkness. You might wonder, how do we do that? This is how we do that. These simple things. It starts with your heart. That's what he's getting at. So now how is this possible? The last point there's two ways that this is possible. And there are two words I want you to remember. Substitution and union. When we read this, it's really humbling. It terrifies us. It crushes us because we realize our faults. I was in community group this last week and a guy named Musao said, this is like Jesus holding the magnification glass on all of our flaws. We knew that there was a gap between us and God, but he's exposing how big the chasm really is. But the good news of the gospel is that he came to be the bridge. And that's what substitution is. The idea of substitution is, is when somebody doesn't have it within themselves to meet the requirements, so somebody comes and does it on their behalf. So in the world of baseball, if the pitcher sucks at batting, you can get him a pinch hitter. My wife thinks that's the dumbest rule in baseball. It's not fair. Well, that's the point. That's the point of Christianity. It's grace. It's not fair. Where we fail, where we fall short in all these standards, Jesus came to do it on our behalf. In every way that we have not had hearts wanting to obey, Jesus says in the book of John, he says, my food is to do the will of the Father. And if you think about these things that Jesus did, he perfectly pursued reconciliation. He never lusted, not once. He stayed faithful in marriage. You said, I didn't know Jesus was married. He was. He, the Bible calls him the groom and the church his bride. And though he did nothing wrong and the bride continued to commit adultery against him, he stayed faithful to the point of death. And he always kept his word. As it says in the scriptures, all the promises of God are found as yes in Christ Jesus. Anything he said to do, 
He did. And so not only did he die for our failures, he also lived on our behalf. So we know what that means, church. His life matters just as much as his death. I've been trying to teach my kids this because at night I say, what are you thankful for? And a lot of times they say, I'm thankful that Jesus died for my sins. But I'm also trying to teach them we should also be thankful that Jesus lived on our behalf because we couldn't do it. That's substitution. And it's good news because it means you're free. You're free because of substitution. You don't have to walk around keeping, a, you know, a moral bookkeeping, saying, am I checking off all the right things for God to be happy with me? Did I mess up too much? Is God mad at me right now? You don't have to worry about that because God is pleased with you because of Christ. You are free. You could go out of here and sin horribly, but in Christ you could be forgiven. You are free because of substitution. Now, the second word is union. Not only does Christ give us these uh, commands saying that he came to fulfill them. He, he, he gave us these commands because this is what he expects his people to be like. And the only way that that happens is through union. When you accept that Jesus is your substitute, when you go to God in humility and say, God, I can't do this on my own. I need you to do it for me. You get a new heart from God. It's called the Christian, uh, Jesus calls it being born again. A new life starts for you. And at that moment, you're adopted into God's family and you begin this new way of life. And the more you are aware of what God has done for you and how united with him you are, the more you start to bear his heart to the world. So some of you have adopted children and you know that when they came into your house at first, they did not represent your heart in all their actions. Did they? No. But over time, as they lived in the shelter of your presence, as they drew near to you, as they heard your thoughts and words, as they experienced your love, they start to bear your heart to the world. And it's the same thing with us in Christ. As we draw close to him, as we experience his love and protection, and we hear his thoughts and deeds, then we start to become this kind of people through union. So because of substitution, you are free, but because of union, you're bound. Not by requirements, now you're bound by love. Because you're saying, he loved me this much. I love him. My love compels me towards obedience, even if I disagree. That's union. And that's why my main point of the sermon is simple. The beautiful life is lived in, or is fulfilled in Christ. You see, it's very encouraging for us, especially this union concept, because a lot of us are in here today beat up, broken, messed up, and we know that we're major sinners. But because of union, God's promise that he will shape us into his image, we can be sure, as Paul says in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Because the beautiful life is fulfilled in Christ. It's a double entendre, has a double meaning. Jesus did it on our behalf. And now as we believe in him, we'll start to be this kind of people. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. We just admit that we can't do it but help us to walk so closely with you that we start to bear your heart to a broken world. I pray for the people who are struggling with these four things, anger, lust, divorce, and oath. Through love, compel us toward obedience. And where we feel our failures, remind us of your substitution. In your name we pray, amen.